Again, I don't remember the last time when we've worshipped. I can't remember the last time we worshipped on 4th of July. It's been a while. But uh, nevertheless, as uh, we join in with David when we say it was good for me. And they said, let us go into the house of the Lord. Let us go into the house of the Lord. Let us go into the house of the Lord. Let us not go to a barbecue. Let us not go. Yes, these things are great. But let us first go to the Lord of the Sabbath. To the Lord of the Sabbath. This is where our heart's at. And give Him our first fruits. This lover of our soul. Amen. As pastor sent me a quote this week, it said, How precious is one soul if God and Satan goes after it. How precious is one soul. So, uh, a brief introduction... In 1993, there was a film. I, I, I graduated around 1998. Shows me getting on up there too. But nevertheless, there's a film, and it keeps you on the side of your seat the whole time. It's an action thriller, 1993, and it's uh, Harrison Ford. And uh, he comes home. He's actually a doctor in Chicago. And he comes home. His name is Dr. Kimball. He comes home to find his wife uh, being beaten and murdered by a one-armed man. Nevertheless, uh, Dr. Kimball, the evidence is pushed aside and he is taken into custody and he is sentenced to death in prison. He is sentenced to death in prison. There, it shows a scene, the, train, uh, the school bus is driving with the criminals on it and it flips, a train hits it, and he flees and runs for his life. He's fleeing. He's a fugitive. That's the key word. That's the movie, the fugitive. But nevertheless, the whole scene shows the FBI, GBI, and they're all going after him. There's dogs after him, running after him. But the whole time, he's showing them more and more traces and finding out more and more of the man who truly did it. Nevertheless, we come to a text this morning. I'm not going to go into the background of it. It comes from 2 Samuel, chapters 11 and 12. This is the same man that penned Psalm 23. This is the same man. This is the same man that penned this verse. It says, the Lord is my shepherd. The same man that says, goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life. Surely, he said, surely. Surely, goodness and mercy. But here, if you will, we have, if you look at this, we have a shepherd. He's a soldier. He's sovereign at one time. He's a singer. He's a songwriter. But we see there's shame. We see he's sorrowful. But also, he sees the Savior. People in the Old Dispensation, the Old Testament, say the same way today as they are in the New Testament. Still of grace, will always be of grace, always been of grace. And it's nothing but God's riches at Christ's expense. So we come this morning and we get to see a beautiful thing that will be an encouragement to us all. And if you will, please take your Bibles and turn with me to Psalm 32. Psalm 32. There's 150 psalms. 
This is in the book, book one. Of the first 40 Psalms. This is Psalm 32. And I've never seen the beauty of this until I've dug into this. And the Lord opened my eyes. He opened the eyes of my heart. And I want to share forth what He's been teaching me. And may the Lord richly bless you. And use this to love Him more and to hate what He hates. Hear the word of the living God. There's 11 verses here. This morning I'm breaking this up into five. The first five verses. And then part two will be six through eleven. So, but I think we see God's word, and I believe truly, as Pastor said, when God says Selah twice within five verses, that's enough said. That's enough said. We need to take that to heart. So we said we have two here within five verses. Hear the word of the living God. Psalm 32. A psalm of David, a, a masculine, also called a contemplation. Blessed is he whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. Blessed is the man to whom the Lord does not impute iniquity, and whose spirit there is no deceit. When I kept silent, my bones grew old. Through my groaning all the day, for day and night your hand was heavy upon me. My vitality was turned into the drought of summer. Selah. I acknowledge my sin to you and my iniquity I have not hidden. I said, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord and you forgave the iniquity of my sin. Selah. Amen. Let us pray. Our Father, searcher of our hearts and lovers of our souls, it is a good day when you give me a glimpse of myself. Sin is my greatest evil, but you are my greatest good. Give me this hour, Lord, Your Spirit. Help us, O God, to see as You see. Open the eyes of my heart. Open the eyes of my brothers' and sisters' hearts that sit here before You. Lord, give us grace this hour because when when You are absent, all sorrow is here. But when You are present, all blessings are mine. Lord, we, and we give You thanks. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Uh, Psalm 32. Psalm 32. The central theme of this is titled The Joy of Forgiveness. The Joy of Forgiveness. Many of you have... This is the first time we've come across a word, masculine. Some of your Bibles may have masculine. M-A-S-C-H-I-L. Masculine. It's a wonderful thing. It's called to give instruction. To give instruction. And I personally believe when David made that vow in Psalm 51, verse 13, he says, remember his cry? Lord, create in me a clean heart, renew in me a steadfast spirit, and restore the joy of your salvation. Restore the joy of your salvation. Then, Then he says, then... I will teach transgressors your way. This is His vow and promise. I believe it comes true right here. It comes true right here. This is after Psalm 32. He's older in age. He's got some battle scars on him. He's speaking now from experience. The best instructors can teach what they know and have felt. They have felt it. The power of God. 
You have felt His transcendent power manifest itself to you and you can speak of it with power. You don't seem like a clinging symbol or a clinging... You have power. So the best instructors are those who know and have felt this firsthand. Felt this firsthand. And if you're a born again believer, you too can testify to this. So right here, this scope is to instruct the convicted soul of how to obtain peace with God. The scope of this is how to obtain peace with God. And that's our cry. The gospel reconciliation. How can man be reconciled to a holy God? There was a man back in the day in his younger age, we just went through the, you know, Leviticus, it talked about slavery, the laws of slavery. There was a man, and you all know it. You all know who I'm probably going to talk about right now. The young man. But God struck him. He became sick. God in His providence struck him and he became a minister. No longer a slave boat captain. God struck him with a physical ailment led him to open up his word and became a minister of God's word. And he said, in his dying age, as his memory began to fail him, he said, two things I remember. Two things I remember this as my memory fails me. I'm a great sinner and Jesus Christ is a great Savior. Let that always be before you. Let this always be before you. This psalm, Psalm 32, is the heart of a true penitent. One that's broken over his sins. That he's committed before God. David is careful right here. As he's given a stumbling block for others to bring reproach upon God's name. He is so careful. And his example of repentance. To lift them back up and encourage them. This morning, I'm going to spin this around real quick without... Everything going fine. You can take notes of this. I wrote this on the back side so you can keep up. Here's the outline if you want to any time just take a look. We'll be looking into the first five verses, part one. So the outline, understanding this psalm within the first five verses. If you look at verses one and two, they form a unit. Sometimes in your Bibles, it actually breaks it up in units for us. We see it there. Psalm 1 and 2. The blessedness of being forgiven. Verses 1 and 2. And this is profound. This is so deep. Verses 3 and 4, we have the results of... Notice this word. Not. Then we get down here, results of. But this morning, we're going to show... The results of not confessing sin in verses 3 and 4. And then we have David's own personal testimony. Okay? And then part 2 gets into the results of confessing sin, exhortations, and the portion of the two great classes of men. They each have their portion. Uh, In Job chapter 5, Job is being chastened by the hand of God in Job chapter 5. He said, affliction does not come up from the dust, nor does trouble spring from the ground. Yet a man is born to trouble as sparks fly upward. If we were to open the floor this morning for a discussion and share stories of pain, heartache, suffering, and trouble, while it is true we all have many burdens from person to person, but there is one common denominator. 
We all must deal with sin, and that's the cause of all our misery. And there's two types of people in this world. Those that are dead in sin, and those that are dead to sin. Dead in sin. This is condemned of God. This is an unbeliever. No one has unregenerate heart, which is sadly the majority. This is churchanity. This is a religious system. And it's sad because the only thing a dead man can do is stink. As we once all were. We must understand that Adam did not just break his finger, he broke his neck. He's totally depraved. His eyes are shut to the things of God. He was driven out of God's presence. Self-deceived and denying their sin. Dead to sin. This is the redeemed of God. He's a believer. Washed in the blood again. He's been bathed in the blood of Jesus. pastor sent a great picture of a simple thing. It said, Jesus didn't go into the house. He looked upon the doorpost. Wasn't who was worthy inside the house. He was just looking on the outside. Also known as regenerate in heart. The few. The confessors. These Christians are known as confessors. Constantly. So look, here's what I want to get to quickly. Sin in the life of the believer must be dealt with. Must be dealt with. And there's only two ways to deal with sin. The arm of the flesh or God's way. The question is, it comes to all of us, which way will we choose? We have a choice. If we deal with sin man's way, leaning upon the arm of the flesh, we fall in the footsteps of our first parents. We hide it, we relish it in secret, and we pretend it never happened. This method always quenches the Spirit of God and our fellowship and communion with God is broken. It leads to disaster and 1 John 5.16 tells us potentially death. God grades on no curve and He has no partiality. Remember Aaron? The other method is God's way and that's the best way. It's always our best way. Always restoring us. Always healing us. Always says, I will heal your, all your diseases and heal your land. Where salvation, where sin has robbed us momentarily. But this morning, we only want to be concerned with God's way. Man, we can, He needs to go. So let's, this morning, look at verses 1 and 2. Look at our text now, please. I've done everything I could to study, and I just pray this will bless you. And, and the Spirit of God will, will stir you up to holiness. Blessed is He whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. Blessed is the man to whom the Lord does not impute iniquity, and in whose spirit there is no deceit. This word blessed, the first thing probably comes to mind is the Sermon on the Mount. Yes. Sermon on the Mount. But you remember, let's go back one. Let's go to Psalm 1. This is, these are called Psalms of Benediction. This is a benediction of the pardon. The benediction of the pardon. This is a general beatitude to anyone, anyone, the whosoever has faith. This is who this promise and blessedness belongs to, the whosoevers. Let's always remember that. We know David is the author. Paul quotes it in Romans 4 and says, regarding this verse, identifies David as the author. As I already mentioned, David is up in age. And we all know this is a man after God's own heart. So the question we look at, it can be read, 
How blessed is He? How blessed is He? In our, in our vernacular, our common day language, He's so lucky. That's our vernacular. But we want to hear from God. How blessed is He? How blessed are those? This psalms is hard. If you take this for a second, He has found pardon with God. It's like He's taking a jewel and He's taking it and He's spinning it round and round. And He's showing it off. And He can't stop uttering in one word the greatness of being pardoned and forgiven of God. And the peace that overflows Him and this, this joy is reflecting at every angle. If you look at this, if Psalm 1 describes, this is key and it's beautiful to understand this. Psalm 1 describes the result of holy blessedness. Psalm 32 describes the cause of it. So you have the result of holy blessedness in Psalm 1 and now you have the cause of holy blessedness. Psalm 1 speaks, this is this is. Beautiful. Psalm 1 speaks of the individual that walks in covenant relationship with, and fellowship with God. Are you ready for this? Psalm 32 even speaks of a greater special blessedness stacked upon one another. Blessed and blessed. Psalm 1 only starts with one blessed. This has two blessings. How about that? Double benediction. It's like a double barrel shotgun. Psalm 32 is even more precious because it's stacked upon one another and it belongs to a man that has failed God. And he has not walked in covenant faithfulness. But God's great mercy and grace has experienced covenant restoration. This man has experienced covenant restoration where he has failed in covenant faithfulness. And this is where the joy comes from. This is where this psalm is shining forth. It beams forth. This is why Newton, Augustine, and Luther all said this is one of their favorite hymns. Favorite hymns. First, let's get to this. Sin is an abomination to God. And it separates from God. All sin separates. Sin makes you stupid. Sin poisons the wellhead. Sin is in our brains. Sin is in our hearts. We think wrongly. We love that which is evil. Sin bribes the judgment, intoxicates the will, and perverts the memory. You may be sitting here saying to yourself, I've never committed adultery. I've never murdered anyone. I've never dealt drugs, nor stolen from my employees. I've never committed any big scandalous sins. However, the Lord says, I see them. You, I don't see as you see. The Lord says, man looks on the outward, but I look on the heart. 1 Samuel 16, verse 7. My question I would ask everyone, and this is a, a big out, and it's humbling. My question is, have you ever gossiped, spoken critical of others, arbored resentment, become impatient with anyone, acted selfishly, worried, been unthankful, had jealous in your heart, discontent, failed to trust God in, in the issues of life, given into materialism, Ever let a sports team become an idol? Maybe even a child. Oh God, we can all hear each one of us saying right now to each one of us, you are the man. Yes. As, Nathan said to the, as Nathan the prophet said to his beloved friend, you are the man. You are the man. 
if you look at this, this is key. I don't want to help break this down for you. Blessed is he whose transgression. We see the word transgression, sin, and iniquity. And you say, wow, this is part of a confession. I call it the Trinity of hell. I call it the Trinity of hell. Transgression, a little t. Transgression, sin, and iniquity. This is a three-headed dog. This is a three-headed dog. But literally, but let's turn that, the worst sin is this man. This, this man's the greatest enemy. And, and here it is. These are words that denote our disobedience and foulness. But it's key to understand these three words. And I've never really seen, you know, we see them all over the place in Scripture. If you regard iniquity, the transgressions, and then you're like, but wow, they're all packed right here in a confession. What do we need to glean from this? And I want to help you by... by so I'm going to try my best. First, transgression. I want to try to simplify this as, and make this as clear as possible. Transgression implies passing over a boundary and doing what is prohibited. It's a going away or a rebellion against God and His authority. It's often summarizes as sins of omission and commission. Proverbs 29, verse 6. I'm going to give a chapter and verse with each one of these. A, an evil man is ensnared in his transgression, but a righteous man sings and rejoices. What a contrast. One's caught, and he's in trouble. And another sings and rejoices. <laughs> That's a distinct contrast. When you're caught in a trap, you're not singing and rejoicing, you're crying for help. What a contrast. What is sin? It implies missing the mark. Sin is the transgression of the law. The wages of sin is death. So whoever knows the right thing to do and fails to do it, for him it is sin, James tells us. What is iniquity? Iniquity implies something evil, perverted, and disrespectful towards God. Also used to refer as a word guilt. It's the root of all original sin. Psalm 66, 18 says, If I regard iniquity in my heart, the Lord will not hear me. So what do we do with this? How will God do... What, where do we go from here? Where do we go from here? The first word... I'm going to describe this. The first word, transgression, describes sin in the view with our relationship to God. Okay, I'm going to go through the relations. The second word, sin, describes the relationship to the divine law. So the first is the relationship to God transgression. Sin is relation to divine law. And third, the word iniquity describes sin relation to ourselves. The word guilt. It is a corruption or twisting of the right standards. So those are the relations of those three words. In Habakkuk chapter 1, Habakkuk 1, the prophet goes on to affirm the holiness of God and how God cannot tolerate evil. Habakkuk 1.12 It says, Your eyes are purer than to see evil and cannot look at sin. Habakkuk 1.13 That was Habakkuk 1.13 And this is anything but the characteristic of the human condition. The pastor brought something to my attention and I thought this was wonderful. Wonderful. There's 1,189 chapters in the Bible, 66 books. 
We know chapters and verses are all for our admonition. But it's, it's good to helpful to find quickly to, to, to get to God's Word. It's for our aid. 1,189 chapters in the Bible. There's only four that does not talk about a sinner and sin. There's only four. Can you guess? Okay. It's the bookends. Genesis and Revelation. And this is not original, please. But uh, it's so wonderful. I have to share it. So the first two chapters, you have the creation by God. In the last two chapters, you have the consummation by Christ. And those are only two chapters. One and two have no sin. 21 and 22 have no sin. See, that means you have 1,185 verses that fills our history with sin. So is the doctrine of sin important? To understand this? How can we understand our need if we don't understand the problem? That's key. Sin fills our history. Yes. So, I'm going to answer that question. So how are these evils dealt with? And where are we to go from here? Turn with me now quickly to Romans chapter 5. The great gulf of sin is bridged. Romans chapter 5. Looking into verse 12. Therefore, just as though one man's sin entered the world and death through sin, and thus death spread to all men because all sinned. For until the law, sin was in the world, but sin is not imputed when there is no law. Nevertheless, death reigned from Adam to Moses, even over those who had not sinned according to the likeness of the transgression of Adam, who is, who is a type of him who was to come. But the free gift is not like the offense, for if by one man's offense many died, much more the grace of God and the gift by the grace of the one man, Christ Jesus, abound to many. And the gift is not like that which came through the one who sinned, for the judgment which came from one offense resulted in condemnation, but the free gift which came from many offenses resulted in justification. For if by one man's offense death reigned through the one, much more those who receive abundance of grace and of the gift of righteousness will reign in life through the one Jesus Christ. Therefore, as though one man's offense judgment came to all men, resulting in the condemnation, even so through one's man righteous act, the free gift came to all men, resulting in justification of life. For as one man's disobedience, many were made sinners. So also by one man's obedience, many were made righteous. There it is. Moreover, the law entered that the offense may abound. But where sin abounded, grace abounded much more. So that as sin reigned in death, even so grace might reign through the righteousness to eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. That great gulf is bridged. The bridge is laid. Right there. That's the bridge. So, if you will, flip back with me to Psalm 32. That's where we go. 
That is the only place to go. That is the only safe place to go. God is angry with the wicked. He is a just God. So, where we had the first three words, I call it, within the confession, we have transgression, sin, and iniquity. Here, now within being forgiven, we have three words. So where do we go and how does God deal with this? Within these first three words. He has three words for those three words. And it's beautiful. Look at this. The trinity of hell is overtaken by the trinity of heaven. Where sin abounded, grace abounded more, we just heard. As the previous words denotes our disobedience emphasized within a confession, now these next three words are gifts employed within the concept of forgiveness. So let these words bless your soul. If you will, look at verses... Right here. I'm, still in, I'm sorry, I'm still in verse 1. This is why it's so loaded. So we have, number one, transgression is forgiven. Sin is covered, number two, and does not impute iniquity. We love the doctrine of double imputation, but how about the doctrine of non-imputation? Forgiven. This word is so powerful. It literally means, I'm going to try to go through these three words and we'll combat the first three words. I call it the trinity of hell. Literally means to be lifted away. The burden is lifted away. And this is the heart of the Gospel is to be forgiven. Finding peace with God through Jesus in His vicarious death and sacrifice. Covered. This word covered. Reminds you of the Day of Atonement. Simply, it's Christ's righteousness. It's faith that receives the garment of Christ and it's by faith that adorns the garment of Christ. This word does not impute. Suggests ascribing to one's account. It's like an accounting term. Well, I'm going to break it down and put it even low. It's removed from your court documents. The records are expunged. No longer to be found. God is the judge. And it's He who justifies. We love this doctrine of double imputation. But let us love more the doctrine of non-imputation. He doesn't impute it to our records. How great and harmonious the Trinity works together to remove all defilement, shame, guilt, sorrow, and punishment, and replaces it with righteousness, security, peace, joy, and an eternal reward. My question is, do you know this blessedness? Will you testify to it? Will you testify to it? As He told the demoniac, the Lord Jesus Himself, go and tell what great things I've done for you. I want to stop right here for a second because if you've been following me, I want to look into, if you will, turn to 1 John. 1 John. And many of you, I'm sure, in your walk and fellowship with the Lord has spent many years in in this one verse. Just pleading this verse back to Him. Look at verse 8 with me, please. Starting in verse 8, 1 John chapter 1. If we say that we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, if, if we confess our sins, He is faithful and just to forgive us of our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. 
If we say that we have not sinned, we make Him a liar and His Word is not in us. So stay with me. In Hebrews chapter 8, we have Hebrews. I don't know who the author is, but it's a man of God. We'll just say that. It's a man of God. In Hebrews chapter 8, verses 10 and 13, he's quoting from the New Covenant. That comes from Jeremiah 31, starting in verse 31. Verse 12, For I will be merciful to their unrighteousness, I will be merciful to their righteousness? No, no, no. I will be merciful to their unrighteousness. That's key. And their sins and their lawless deeds I will remember no more. In that, he says, a new covenant has been made and the first is obsolete. Now, now know what blessing... Now, I'm sorry. Know what is, is becoming obsolete and growing old is ready to vanish away. And in Psalm 103, we've, we've spent, I think I opened up one time with this, it says, forget not the benefits of the Lord. And the first benefit was, you remember, He pardons our sins. In, in Psalm 103, verses 11 and 12, later on down, after the benefits are mentioned, it says He remembers our sins no more, and He forgives them as far as the east is from the west. So if you're following me, but he said, we're to confess our sins but they're not to be brought back up. So how are we so you would think there's an apparent contradiction here. You know, one was having spent time reading the whole context of God's word, and sometimes even there's some heresies going around now that men don't need to confess their sins if they're washed under the blood of Jesus. And I think this is a a great great fallacy that needs to be corrected. Not that I need to correct it, but as believers we need to speak upon this. Forgiveness falls. I want to share with you, if you will. There's no contradiction here. And I want to show you this, that forgiveness falls within two categories. Two categories. Bless her. <laughs> within two categories. It's judicial forgiveness and then parental. Judicial and parental. If you will, flip with me to turn with me to John chapter 13. And you all know this is the upper room discourse where the Lord Jesus is speaking with His disciples and He's washing their feet. If you will look in verse 13. Starting verse 5, After that, He poured water into a basin and began to wash His disciples' feet and to wipe them with the towel which He was girded with. He came to Simon Peter and said, Peter... I'm sorry. Then he came to Simon Peter, and Peter said to him, Lord, are you washing my feet? Are you washing my feet? Then he he said to Simon Peter, sorry, and Jesus answered and said to him, What I am doing you do not understand now, but you will know after this. Peter said to him, You shall never wash my feet. Jesus answered and said to him, If I don't wash you, you have no part with me. Simon Peter said to him, Lord, not my feet only, but my hands and my head. <laughs> Goodness. Jesus said to him, He who is bathed needs only to be only to wash his feet. He who is bathed needs only to wash his feet, but is completely clean. 
and you are clean, but not all of you. So here, there's no contradiction. So what does that represent, okay? It's key to understand this, and this gives us wings to fly. Judicial. God is judge. We come before His bar, guilty. He's the only one that can set us free from the penalty of sin. So right here, when you're bathed as you have trusted in the gift that He has given for the penalty which He laid upon His Son, that's our justification, being bathed. So bathing illustrates our forgiveness from a judicial standpoint. Washing illustrates the fatherly forgiveness of our sanctification. That's our sanctification. This ongoing... Please know that ongoing confessions don't bring justification. Ongoing confession of sin is solely related to our sanctification. So, it is so beautiful. You remember in Luke chapter 11, we have the Lord's Prayer. Really, it's the disciples' prayer. It's our prayer. But if you look at this, remember what it says? Does it say this? Our judge who art thou in heaven? Our Father. Our Father. Not judge. Our Father who art in heaven. As a father pities his son, so does God pity those who fear Him. This is fatherly love. This is one that we call now Abba Father. Adopted into the family of God. So this is where we have parental justification and we have first, number one is always judicial. So this is where Peter, he said, you didn't understand this, but you will later. You will later. Because he who begins a good work will finish it. So let us hasten on. If you will, flip back with me to Psalm 32. But that, that first two, Those first two verses are loaded. And if you will look at this, now if we look at the end of verse 2, now we have the character of the one that's pardoned is changed. And whose spirit there is no deceit. What a word. What is guile? This another word is guile. Remember we said, this is an Israelite whom there is no guile. Here's Nathaniel. No deceitfulness. But what does this mean? And this is, this is where, this is key. Another term is deceit. It's simply this. One that is not honest with the reality and is not serious and sincere of the weightiest matters of life. There's deceiving guile that has flooded their character and it represents their being. So the weightiest matters of life, what are they? I'm sure you have family members. I do. They'll never want to hear about judgment. They never want to hear about death, heaven or hell. And they dare not to think, ponder one second any of those. It's so sad. It is sad. And I'll tell you why. You ready? Why why they don't want to ponder this? Because they know. They know. Oh, do they know. They know there's something wrong within them. And they practice a crafty cleverness and a cunning indifference. When their true character is exposed and brought to life, brought to light, their conscience alarms them and immediately the ink is cast into the water. You ready? Mindless statements are made. Empty religious questions are brought about. I get sick of it. Quit playing games. Go play at Six Flags. 
Empty religious questions regarding tradition, ceremony, doctrines, types, prophecies. They cloud the water for their escape. And their sad song, their sad song, they play over and over on the radio in their head. is peace, peace. When there's absolutely none. What a lying, damning deception that is. How can there be peace in such darkness? How can there be peace when stripes are being laid upon your back and the chains are getting tighter and tighter around your ankles and your wrists and your neck? How is that peace? How can it be? An example of this is, I'm sure you've all heard it from the, in the Gospel of Matthew, and it's probably one of the most misused texts of our day. Coin the 11th commandment. Judge not, that you may be not judged. I'm going to stop there because that's not even half the verse. That's all that they know. That's all that Satan has vomited back up through this precious vessel that he has robbed and stolen. It's not his possession. But you hear this, Miss Lillian was mentioned this morning. Pity their soul. Hate the sin. Pity them. This is all they know. Judge not that you be not judged. How many times have you heard it if you start talking about sin? That's not even half the verse. It's not even a quarter of the verse. But here, not only unbelievers, but even professing Christians are like will say this. And most are professing Christians. As if Jesus tells His people to not make any judgments whatsoever is absurd. Christ is, is most certainly not forbidding His people from, his, from issuing judgments altogether. Remember the context of this Scripture is the Sermon on the Mount. It's all about contrasting true and false religion. You have heard, but I say unto you. In fact, Jesus in the same Gospel orders us to discriminate between good and evil. We must differentiate between those Recepted to us from the dogs and swans in order to obey Jesus as being disciples. We have to be obedient. In summary, Jesus is warning us to be fair and humble when we make our evaluations, not to be hypocritical in our judgments. We are prone to be harder on others. Consider David's reaction to Nathan. Let me follow this with me. Consider Nathan's reaction to Nathan when he slept with Bathsheba and murdered her husband. The king did more evil than the man Nathan gave him in his parable. But David wanted to chase after the speck in that man's eye. You follow me? He's chasing after the speck in that man's eye. He can't see the plank in his own eye. Sin has duped him and made him so stupid. Now that's what the Lord's talking about in this verse. Take this plank out of your own eye. David's chasing after the speck in this parable of that man and brings judgment upon his own head. He sees his sin so blinded by the plank in his own eye. Joel 2.13 says, Rend your heart, not your garments. So if you will, now let's hasten on. Verses 3 and 4. The results of not confessing sin. Notice this right here. Sin affects the whole being. Sin affects our whole being. And I can testify this, and it's sad, it's our physical, spiritual, and emotional well-being. It's all out of whack. It's haywire. 
Notice this, when I kept silent, not when I was silent, I kept silent. I kept it. David describes this pathetically from his own sad experience. This experience God allowed to go on for almost a year. A year! You and I know when you sin, can you imagine a year suppressing such a thing? We're about to hear what it said. The inward reality of the guilt of conscience suppressed in silence has an awful, awful effect. It is like a festering wound, like Pastor mentioned earlier. Undealt with, the wound gets bigger and bigger till it just explodes. It festers. It's like a dam, like a river flowing, and the dam has been blocked, and the water swells to the banks, and then it affects everybody on the wayside. Sin affects everybody. It affects everybody in your life. And I'm sad, this is sad, but it does. And it's an awful thing. How sudden and downward the spiral of sin takes you. This is the oil and this man's lamp has almost gone out. His lamp of light is flickering and it's, and it's starting to give a black soot given off as it's flickering, about to run out of oil. And this is where he's at. His lamp of life is about to give out. If you will, look at this right here. Verse 3, When I kept silent, my bones grew old through my groaning all the day long. Notice he says, my bones grew old. The bones are the main support structure of your body. He said, my bones become like an old, old, feeble man. I can't even support my own weight. I have no strength. The strength of my vitality is sapped. It's sapped. He says, then the groaning and roaring, his speech, the utterance of that, had become like a beast caught in a trap and it's by its own predator and it's making out a howling noise to be released. He's uttering and roaring. Words can't even be brought. Brought. They can't even be mustered up. If you will, look at verse 4a. We have the spiritual. That was the physical. Look at 4a. Verse 4. For day and night your hand was heavy upon me. My vitality was turned into the drought of summer. Selah. As Pastor mentioned earlier, his violin and harp, the, spring, the strings popped. They had broken. And whatever strings was left on there are all out of tune. And they're making an awful hiss. The spiritual hand. Can you imagine this? The hand of God was heavy upon it. This is chastisement. One finger of God can crush us. The hand of God was upon him. Notice this. This is awful convictions, but it's sweet drawings too. These are tender drawings. Faithful are the wounds of a friend. (laughs) It'll make you want to cry. Pastor one time shared with me. The worst thing God will do to His children is whoop them all the way to heaven. Praise God. Let it be so. Let it be so. If that's what it takes. But if one is too proud to acknowledge his sin, we deserve the punishment. Taking a spanking hurts. 
4B. Look on down in 4B. It says, My vitality was turned into the drought of summer. He's dried up. And I don't know about you, but anything in gardening, you've got to put water on it to bear fruit. Take fruit from it and that plant is done. He is dried up. Joy is gone and there's peace no like... There's peace. The river's gone. Peace like a river. It's not flooding anymore. It's dried up. It's gone. There's no thoughts about God. No prayers to God. He's dried up. It's stolen him, robbed him, and beaten him, and has let it, let him left him bleeding from within. Bleeding from within. Proverbs, the great Proverbs twenty eight thirteen says, "He who covers his sins will not prosper." It's it's right. This is to me the commentary of that. But whoever confesses and forsakes them will have mercy. Yes. Yes. Amen. Look at verse 4 with me. Notice it says at the end of verse 4, Selah. His, like I said earlier, his strings had popped. And they're all out of tune. Now it's time to be still my soul. Be still my soul. And meditate upon what is going on right now. What has happened? Let me come to my senses. So this is a break. So now look at verse 5. This is David's personal testimony. This is the heart of the psalm. As this almost falls right in the center of the psalm, this is the heart of David. I said I will confess my transgressions to the Lord. The psalmist becomes resolved not only to confess before God, but he makes his confession before a worshiping congregation. It was an open sin. David had held out long, but when he did surrender, how quickly and easy did he obtain favor with God. Notice there is no break in this. No break. No pause. Look at this. I acknowledge my sin to you. That you is capitalized. Not to a man. To God. In my iniquity I have not hidden. I said I will confess my transgressions to the Lord. And you forgave the iniquity of my sin. There is no... There was no nine months of pausing. There was no year of pausing just like he had hidden it. Immediately. What I love about this is so beautiful. He had done just like the prodigal son. He had made up on his mind. It said he never, He said, I was going to say this, but he never voiced it. He, was, he had said and rehearsed the same thing what the prodigal had done. When he turned to the father, the father was already running. It's immediately he's restored. How do we know that? We look at the product and we see this. We see this admonition here for our sake. And he says, And you forgave the iniquity of my sin. If you will, in, in, the, in your own spare time, look at the chastisement of a, the, the prayer of a chastisement in Psalm 38. It goes into deeper of the chastening and depthness of the Lord. And it's Psalm 38. But. How do I land this plane? Where do we go from here? There's a hymn that we love to sing here and it has three great probing questions that it always starts with. Have you been to Jesus for the cleansing power? Are you washed in the blood of the Lamb? Are you fully trusting in His grace this hour? I ask you, if you remain unwashed, as Jesus just said in John 13, from the Master's lips Himself, you have no part with Me. 
the past unforgiven, the present unchanged, and the future unsanctified. And there remains for you that dread summons. It comes, that, that summons. When death comes, it's going to be that bailiff, that, that arresting officer that takes you to the judgment. It's appointed unto man to die once, then judgment. And we're all on probation. We're all probationaries. We're probationaries of grace. Under grace. In grace. Notice David said, goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life. He pinned that. First of all, he just doesn't know. He knew the God of mercy. These are, this is who God is. He was leaning upon who God is. So nothing can comfort so when that arresting officer, if you're not washed and bathed in the blood of Christ, that awful day will come when death, that, that arresting officer, takes you to the judgment and the verdict will be given. God's hell is prison. God's prison is hell. And then the eternal lake of fire. <laughs> Nothing can afford a ray of hope at that time. It's too late. So I warn you to flee from, this, flee from your sin. To be washed. Oh, how simple it is. Nothing is asked of you but to take what Christ has made ready for you. Take what Christ has made ready for you. Oh, cast not away the promise of God through unbelief, which is the dog of hell. But accept the washing. At least you cast yourself into eternal condemnation. You cast yourself into eternal condemnation. But beloved, embrace this example and be washed over and over and over and over. This work is so simple yet difficult to pride. Mercy is freely given solely on Christ's sake alone. Let us work out our salvation with fear and trembling. If salt has lost its flavor, it's good for nothing but to be thrown out and trampled under the feet of men. As Pastor mentioned earlier, salt is a preservative. But I want you to know this too. Salt is an antiseptic. It's a healing balm. And it's what done in secret. Notice he said, let salt and light. Notice the Sermon on the Mount and the very first thing he says, be salt of the world. The word salary comes from salt. You've heard people say he's not worth his salt. The word salary comes from the word salt because that's what people they bartered with back then. So, let us be antiseptics, a healing balm to everyone we come into. And you are already. But then you have the salt, which is secretive. And then the balancing act of that is light. Salt is, like Pastor said, is a preservative. It is. Salt is for dying men and decaying men, where light is for living men. So, may we embrace this example and be washed over and over again. Believe in Jesus now and you shall be cleansed. Your life shall become new when your final day here on earth comes to depart to be with the Father, and you shall see Jesus where He is, and you shall behold His glory. You shall behold His glory. He says, come unto Me. What a great invitation. Not to the church, to Him first. Let us take this word this morning, and we see these examples of the double blessedness. The causes. We had this for our admonition. God allowed what showed us what happens when sin is unprofessed. You don't prosper. But when we acknowledge it, there's immediate, immediately forgiveness 
And that's found through Jesus Christ, His Son. Where if we, I hate to say, I guess the word is, if we were to never be washed, if we're truly bathed and washed in the, in the blood of Jesus, and we were to never confess our sins again, you're still received of God. You're still pleased and beloved of God. But your fellowship and communion will not be sweet. It will be grieved. But I want you to know this. Forgiveness is absolute and certain and cannot ever be brought back up. It can never be brought back up. Never. But we, we need to be cleansed daily. So let us pray. Our Father, Lord, we love You. We thank You for Your tender mercy and Your loving kindness, which is better than life itself. We thank You for this Word. We pray, Lord, that we will see this dog of hell and this trinity of hell, transgression, sin, and iniquity, where sin abounded, grace abounded more. Hallelujah! Lord, You're so good. You're so good. Lord, I, we love You because what You have commanded, You've already provided. Help us, Jesus, to lean upon You. As that limpet, as that little little animal of the seashore that You've created, He clings to the rock of its salvation. Help us to cling to Jesus, the rock of our salvation. That as the winds and storms of this world beat us and the waves beat upon us, oh Lord, may we kiss the rock. May we kiss the rock of our salvation. And as the waves beat upon us and more, let it strengthen us in faith and grow deeper to love You more and hate what You hate and to be a, a, a... uh, just a vessel of honor for Your glory. Lord, we want to just return a token back to You what You've done to us, washing us and bathing us. Lord, You are so good to us. We love You. And we thank You and we praise Your name. In Jesus' name, receive all glory, God. In Jesus' name, Amen.